Warning, this podcast contains heavy spoilers for not just one movie, but entire franchises. We highly recommend going and watching these movies before listening to us as a companion piece that stitches all the timelines into one creepy, crime-ridden story. There will be no more spoiler warnings. We do not break character. After this, there is no turning back. You've been warned. Hit the music. You are talking about the nonsensical ravings of a lunatic mind. It's alive! It's alive! It's alive! gonna open a little different this week there was a little girl who really loved dolls she had a big collection of them in her bedroom uh-huh. one day while she was browsing through a shop on her own she spotted a really beautiful doll it would make a perfect addition to her collection she only hoped she had enough money to buy it how much is that doll ma'am she asked the old woman behind the counter this doll is not for sale replied the woman bitch but it's so beautiful, said the girl. I really want it. The old woman became irritated. I told you, it's not for sale, she said. Why not, persisted the girl. Because this doll is cursed. Well, that's okay. I don't mind. I'm not going to sell it to you. But if you really must have it, go ahead and take it. It's yours. But if something bad happens, don't blame me. Ah, yes. Thank you, said the girl, smiling, as she grabbed the the doll and walked out of the shop. The little girl was so delighted to get the doll for free that she ran all the way home, carrying it in her arms. When she got to home to her apartment building, she went to the lobby. It was deserted. She stood there waiting for the elevator to arrive. The doors opened, and she stepped inside, clutching her doll tightly. The doors closed. But the elevator didn't move. The little girl got scared and began trembling in fear. Oh my God, she thought to herself. Is this the curse of the doll? Suddenly, she felt the doll move in her arms. Ever so slowly, its head turned to face her. The little girl wanted to scream, but she couldn't make a sound. The doll's eyelids fluttered and opened. It stared at her with her lifeless glass eyes. And then it opened its mouth and it said... Push the button to go up, bitch. I was just about to fucking say it. And I was like, don't interrupt him. I was like, push the fucking button. Hello and welcome to It's Alive Alive podcast. This is a true crime paranormal interstellar podcast covering unbelievable stories that sound like they were ripped straight from the pages of a Hollywood script. I'm your host, the man of many names, the outlaw Harley Ray, the bruiser Bronson, Dr. H. Josh Smokenstein, THC, or you can call me Josh for short. And with me as always is my very own scream queen, the perfect combination of beauty and brains, the brightest Smokenstein. You need the hard expert, the guts and gore, the gorgeous, the sexy Amy Rose. And Amy, I'm scared. Me too. <laughs> we kind of have to talk about it. I mean, Do we have to? <sighs> really didn't want to. But, uh, okay, let me explain first why I didn't want to. Because people would take that badly as well. You said that we didn't want to. Yeah, yeah. because people would be like, oh, you shouldn't be burying your head no, in the sand. No, it's... But, I mean, 
I suppose let me explain first why I bury my head in the sand. Like for the first 30 odd years of my life, I like to be completely ignorant and carefree when it came to world politics, the economy or just general world news. It's too depressing. And when you're younger, you can disassociate from this stuff. Mm. If it's not affecting your everyday life directly, who cares? And if shit happens in this country, I can split to the UK or the US or Canada or Australia. There's always greener fields like, you know. Yeah. Then COVID happened and there was nowhere to run. Couple that with the US and their constant political turmoil and the Russian Ukraine war, and suddenly I'm forced to kind of start looking at things because everywhere and everything is affecting my everyday living, do you yeah, know? Yeah, suddenly I you know, the world got very small and claustrophobic, and it, you couldn't run anymore, you couldn't get away from it anymore. It was all there in your face, like that. That's it. So, and it does affect you. Like, it affects how much our food costs. Mm-hmm. It affects how much Oil. our heating yeah. is. It affects how much our, it costs on our cars. It affects our health fucking insurances here. It, it affects, it affects, no, not obviously not to the level it affects the poor people who are yeah. fucking oh, dealing yeah, with yeah, these, yeah. Atro- these wars and these atrocities and shit. But there is a knock on effect. Mm-hmm. Same with COVID. When COVID happened and everyone was getting money off the government to stay at home. We all knew that money was going to have to come from somewhere later. Yeah. And we're fucking feeling that pinch now as well. Mm. But, like I said, it's forced me to kind of grow up a little bit and start paying attention to what is going on around me. So, I mean, obviously, what's been dominating everybody's news feed for at least... I mean, obviously, this has been an issue for hundreds and hundreds of years i mean as long as i'm alive i can remember hearing about palestine versus israel yeah yeah as long as i'm alive i can remember it's always and i think that's one of the reasons why i don't really know a whole pile of all it is because it was just something that was always there are you taking for granted you just kind of fucking ignore it so when i said when i say i had absolutely no idea what they were fighting over i mean it i mean i've no interest up until I, 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 when Ukraine and Russia kicked off, I was glued to you CNN. Were, I remember you had the news on the whole. And time. when uh, the last US election, I was glued oh, to the yeah, TV yeah, watching yeah. what was going on. And our, our own last election, I was glued to it, you know, to see what mm. Sinn Fein get in and mm-hmm. then will we see a change here? Because in Ireland, we're not a two, we're not a two party no. system here. There's multiple parties and two parties in particular have kind of ran our country for fuck it as long as we've as, as long as we've been uh, 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 and one that is starting to get a chance is Sinn Féin but they were held back because they were seen as the political wing to a terrorist organization known as the IRA which is actually something we're going to get into a little later so we'll talk about that later because that's something we can discuss later when we compare what we're yeah. kind of going to get into here but anyway I wanted to try and educate myself on this Israeli-Palestine thing. Now, we would like to stress, and I mean fucking stress, we do not know anything really about this situation. We're only addressing this situation because it kind of plays into the story we're going to tell today. Uh Uh, There's comparisons that can be made later not directly to what's going on but what happened to the jewish people uh, during world war ii and what's happening in palestine and israel now okay so what i did was 
because it seems like it's an extremely complicated subject, i.e. life I have that. Yeah, five. So what that is, is it's a Reddit thing. It's explain it like I'm five. Oh, yeah, yeah. So I went on and I found an 11-year-old post from a Reddit user named Diablovert13. And the ending little bit that has an update from last year was by a Reddit user named Reddit at night. Now, I feel as a person who I did not know what was the story here going in, that this man seems very impartial. Okay. Seems very unbiased. He tells both sides of the story to the point that by the end of it, I was kind of sitting there going, I understand both. Historically, I understand Sample both sides. sides. Yeah. But what's going on now ain't cool. No. <laughs> or what's been going on. Oh, yeah. But I understand how we got here from this uh, statement. So if you're like me and you're completely ignorant of what the whole Palestine-Israel issue is, here's going to be a little rundown on what I learned this week from Reddit. Cool. And explaining it like I'm five. So, 3,000 years ago, there were these people called Jews. And they lived in a land of Israel, whose capital was Jerusalem. We've all heard of Jerusalem. That is a big story in the myth of old baby Jesus. They were pretty different from most of their neighbors because they were monetists and they had certain cultural practices which also marked them out. So monetist is one, one god, god, right? Yeah. Not like me where I'm the, I'm poly, poly. Yeah. But um that's strange, isn't it? Before Jesus did the Jews so they just believed in God but there was no in God, yeah. But yeah, yeah, and Jesus is just a prophet, not exactly, uh, the yeah. son of God. Yeah, but even remember. for us, yeah, 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 it's still just mono. Yeah. Yeah. Oh no, I get that. Yeah, I get that. Most of them are no. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I don't know if you ever went to Sunday school or anything, but have you ever heard of the phrase "render unto Caesar what is Caesar's"? It's a quote from Jesus. Okay. That's because two thousand years ago, when Jesus was alive allegedly, there were still Jews and they still lived in the land of Israel. But Israel had been conquered by the Romans and was at that point a Roman colony and paid taxes to Rome and its head of state, Caesar. About 70 years after Jesus died, 180 or so, the Jews started to rebel against their Roman rulers because the rulers were trying to enforce emperor worship and preventing them from practicing certain aspects of their faith. There was a war and the Jews lost badly. The vast majority of them fled Israel. Their main center of worship in Jerusalem was torn down and erased. Most of the time, when stuff like that happens in history, within a couple of generations of losing power and becoming refugees, uh, people tend to end up merging with the population of wherever they fled to. This is why you don't hear so much about Scythians these days. I have no idea what they are, so that will tell you. They feature in Cucullin's legend. Yeah? That's um, where I guess the the toast beer from. (coughs) So where would they be from? Uh, Good question. But I will have a look for that for you. And while you're looking up that anyway. So it wasn't so much like that for the Jews. They stuck together partially because they were a pretty unique culture that helped them do so. Monetism, a written text of their people's history, laws and religious practices. And partially because they were discriminated against a lot. 
You look like you have your information, do you? So the uh, migrated westward from Central Asia to Southern Russia in the 9th century and Southern Russia and Ukraine in the 8th century and 7th century. So kind of coming from Asia and then through to Russia. Anyway, so as I said, the Jews, they are no no stranger to discrimination. They have, when you look at their history, they've had a fucking rough history. There ended up being Jewish communities all over the world, in Ethiopia, India, North Africa, and especially Europe, which retained their unique culture for hundreds and hundreds of years after losing their homeland. Why were they discriminated against? Because while the Jews were spreading across the globe, Christianity was also on the upswing, and most Christians blamed the Jews for killing Jesus. Around 300 AD, Christianity became the official religion of the Roman Empire and spread through pretty much all of Europe. Cue a continent-wide pathological hatred of Jewish people. This lasted, well, one is tempted to say up until now, but certainly all through the Middle Ages, when Jews were often forced to live in segregated neighborhoods like ghettos, had discriminatory laws written against them, were expelled wholesale from a couple of countries at one time or another, England in 1290, uh, 1290 in Spain in 1492, and every once in a while, in lots of places, there'd be random riots where people would get riled up invade a Jewish neighborhood and beat a bunch of Jews to death this was basically the situation for Jews in Europe with minor variations up through the 19th century so hold on to that for a minute meanwhile back in the land formerly known as Israel there were still some Jews left but following the Roman expulsion, lots of people from the other nearby colonies moved in and Jews were a small minority there now with most of the rest being a grab bag of polytheists and Christians and so forth. Around about 500 AD, the Roman Empire was in decline. Local rulers controlled little bits of its former territory. And then in 600 or so, along came a guy who you may have heard of by the name of Muhammad. Now, if you know any Muslim, you probably do know a guy by the name of Muhammad. A lot of them have. Uh, but like you see, a lot of them would have it just in there somewhere. Mm-hmm. You even notice that with the, the Norwegians and the, the Scandinavians. Thor you say Thor and Odin used yeah. to be just thrown it like Thorsten and stuff like that just to get, get it in there. Yeah. So, um, so uh, obviously, Muhammad turns up and he invents a new religion called Islam. The man is a hit. By the year 700 or so, basically all of the area we now call the Middle East had been conquered by Muhammad and his followers and gradually begins to convert to Islam. Not 100%, but every, uh, not about 100% of everybody, but the vast majority of people, including the territory which had been Israel. Around this time, that area is encompassed by a larger area known as Palestine. So while the Jews are scattered all over the world, being shat on by whoever's in charge, the land that used to be called Israel spends a a thousand plus years forming a small part of various Muslim empires and being lived in and ruled by Muslims, and mostly being referred to as Palestine. This catches catches us up to the 19th century. 
During the 19th century in Europe, nationalism was a big thing. The countries of Germany and Italy were created, basically under the idea that everyone who speaks the same language is a part of one people and each person deserves their own country. Some Jewish leaders noticed this, plus the fact that they were continually being discriminated against and they said, you know what, fuck it, we're never, we're never going to be safe and secure unless Jewish people have a country to call, call their own. They started a movement called Zionism, which held that Jews from Europe and other places should move back to the area that used to be Israel. So they started buying land and working towards creating their own country. Given how heavily Jews were discriminated against in Europe, this Zionism thing turns out to be pretty popular. Rich Jews help buy buying land and poor Jews start shipping out to uh, the areas to farm it. Now, in the late 19th century, Palestine Israel was a part of the Ottoman Empire, a Muslim empire founded by Turks. Palestine Israel was basically the boonies for the Ottomans, not a very important part of their territories. So while there was friction between local Muslims living there and when the Jews started moving in, the Ottomans didn't really do a whole pile to stop it. And while local people might have resented their new neighbours, they weren't really worried about them actually taking over because they knew the sultans would never allow that. So, from the late 19th century through to the beginning of the 20th, more and more Jews were moving in. There's friction and some blow-ups, but the whole area is still a Muslim-majority province of a Muslim empire. Then World War I happens. The Ottoman Empire loses badly in fact the ottoman empire ceased to exist reduced down to just one country turkey the other the other areas that it used to rule are divided up amongst the victors and become colonies of various european countries palestine fell to the british and the jews were super super psyched about this because they felt like they had a much better chance of taking the british talking the british into letting them have their own country than they had of talking the ottomans into having their own country tons more jews started to move to israel slash palestine mm-hmm. meanwhile the muslims are like hey man what the fuck are you for real get the junk get the fuck out this is our country (laughs) tensions increased there are lots of riots and fighting between the jews and the muslims and they're both looking at the brits to you know say what you gonna do about it the brits mostly just kind of play one side off the other and just try and placate everybody Mm. and keep everybody happy and keep everyone quiet and sweep it on under the rug Yeah, yeah Then there was a little thing called World War Two. If there were any Jews left around who thought Jews didn't need their own country, well, let's say there weren't many Jews left around who thought that. As the aftermath of the war was being sorted out, they began to lobby hard for Israel to become its own country. And most of the Allied countries basically agreed with them. They were kind of like, shit man, after what Hitler did... We're totally on your side with this, having your own country thing. Go for it. Mm. The British, who were mostly sick of trying to run interference on the whole deal, threw up their hands and just noped the fuck out of it, handing over control of the Palestine-Israel area to the UN in 1948. Except the UN was like six months old at this point and basically had no power and didn't know what it was doing. The UN was all, so guys, take a look at these plans we drew up that show how we could divide up the area into a Jewish part and a Muslim part. What do you think? The Muslims are like, are you fucking shitting me? The Jews are like, "Uh, that's a nice plan and all, but you know what? Instead, how about we declare Israel a country starting right now? Suck it. Okay. 
So the Jews declared Israel to be an independent nation and the Muslims who were living there, aka the Palestinians, were not happy. Again, we can kind of relate to this part of it. We'll get into it when we discuss mm. it afterwards. Because something very similar kind of happened here with Ireland that caused a civil war as well. And so were, what was I saying? So yeah, they weren't happy. And so were most of the Muslims living nearby in other countries like Egypt and Syria. So outside of the Palestinians being pissed, the surrounding Muslim countries are also pissed. Pretty much immediately a war starts between the Jews and the surrounding Muslim countries. During the hostilities, a lot of Muslims living in Jewish majority areas fled. To everyone's surprise, because they had way more soldiers, the Muslim alliance lost badly. The Palestinians who had fled were struck living as, were stuck living as refugees, mostly in small areas across across the Jordan River from the new Israel. But lots in the country now known as Jordan and other places as well. The Jews got to keep Israel as its own country, which lots of people in the US and Europe and Canada supported because of the whole Hitler thing. In the US especially, which was, which has its own significant Jewish population, lots of politicians were big supporters of Israel. To be honest with you, if you would ask me where the Jews were from, I would have said fucking America up and <laughs> when I was younger because yeah. anytime you had heard of Jews, it was on American TV shows. Gradually, because of other Cold War developments that I won't go into now, it became strategically very useful for the West to have a strong ally in that part of the world, and Israel was it. They provided Israel with money and guns to help support them. I suppose it's kind of like the Cuban Missile Crisis. If you start sticking missiles in Israel, it's a lot closer to fucking Russia than than America is. Same way Cuba is a lot closer to America America. than Russia is. Uh, most of the Muslim, so most of the Muslim world is still pretty pissed about the whole thing. There were several more wars between Israel and the surrounding states, which Israel has won. In 1960, in the 1967 war in particular, Israel captured a bunch more territory and expanded its borders. Unlike in the 1948 War of Independence, however, this territory was pretty much exclusively Muslim. Since then, settlers have been systematically moving into this captured land to try and make it a majority Jewish-owned area, mostly with the support of the Israeli government. The US and other countries are against this, but if the settlers succeed, there won't be enough land left for the Palestinians to have their own country, and most people think they should have one too, a two-state solution. Yeah. I love the way they say the US and other countries against it, but the US are the ones that are like, here's money, here's guns, <laughs> know, here's yeah. bombs, yep. whatever you do with it is, yeah, oh, it's, it's not, it's not, I'm not looking, I don't know, I don't want to know. <laughs> <laughs> After losing the 1967 war, some Palestinian groups turned to terrorism in their bid to keep fighting for statehood. Again, something Irish people can relate to and we will get into again in a few minutes. The US and other countries which supported the existence of Israel were considered fair game as well. There have been, there have also been several huge, large-scale uprisings against Israel by Palestinians. The Palestinian territories are landlocked and very poor, so that kind of fucks them too. Mm-hmm. There have been a few other wars between Israel and the other Arab states, but gradually the other Arab states make peace with Israel. So Israel is much wealthier than its neighbors and has much, uh, much more advanced army. I wouldn't have thought that. I don't know why I saw Israel as a But poor I mean, they, all, they all have mal- mandatory military training as well, men and women. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. But a lot of those Middle Eastern countries do. Mm. 
Okay, so that was the first guy's bit. This is the the update. So now it's twenty twenty four. Most of what was British territory, the British territory of Palestine, is now the nation of Israel. They maintain military control over the entire territory, but there were two regions that are no- nominally Palestinian. One is called the West Bank, and it's the land between Jerusalem and the River Jordan. The other region is called Gaza, a small strip wedged between Egypt and the sea. Life in the Palestinian territories is not good. Israel's control their, Israel controls their borders. Israelis are also building new towns in the West Bank and then building walls around them. Economic opportunities for Palestinians are pretty slim. About the only way the Palestinians can fight back is through guerrilla tactics and terrorism. Gaza is controlled by an Islamic group called Hamas who believe that Israel should be wiped out and the whole territory should be returned to the Palestinian control. This is unlikely as, as much as Hamas or Palestine fight, generally Israel can fight back a hell of a lot harder, which means for your average Palestine civilian, things are just going to get a lot worse and just going to keep getting worse and worse. There have been a number of attempts to have peace talks and resolve the issue. Palestinian, Palestine doesn't want to accept what they view as crumbs. Israel don't want to leave or give up their land. The big thing I take away from this, though, is instead of becoming better than their oppressors, that it seems Israel, you know, they they, they founded their country for, that they wanted to found a country for. Mm. They wanted to get away from these oppressors, and instead of building a utopia where they could be better than these people, they have become these homicidal, genocidal fucking maniacs. And are doing the exact same thing to the Palestinian people that has been done to the Jewish people for fucking thousands and thousands of years. Oh, absolutely. So I think like that's really where you're looking at it and going, well, you know, you of all of all the cultures and all the religions and all the people in the world, you more than anybody should know what this feels like. And you should fucking mm. maybe take a step back and look at how you're yeah. fucking dealing with this. Because yeah. I would agree, you know, from what I know, their best bet here seems like a two-state system. It sounds like the, yeah, the best. Because it, 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 it's kind of like they both have claim to the land. I mean, you know, it, it's different. Like, you know, when you look at like the Ireland-England situation. That seems too fresh because it's only a couple of hundred years. No, no, it's eight hundred years, eight nine hundred years. But in in comparison to the thousands of years that their conflict has been going on, where it's like it's 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 so historical. That it's so historical that you can't really be blaming the modern day Palestinians for being where they are, and yeah. you can't really kind of push them out now just because you got pushed out by their ancestors a thousand years ago yeah do you know i mean like we didn't like it here either but there had to be a fucking uh, there was so much fucking back and forth fighting between catholics and protestants up the north that we had had to kind of say i mean like th- there was civil war in this country because, oh, yeah, because of, of a two-state exactly, system yeah and because we had to give up some fucking land to the english to get the majority back mm-hmm. and i mean if you ask some irish they were still fighting for it and i mean i mean i only saw and actually yesterday when Mary Lou McDonald said she reckons by 2040 that we'll have a referendum for the fucking uh, 32 county full Irish country again. 
they have a re- as in like we can't do anything about it down here as in like a referendum in the south yeah, it would have to be like oh, a yeah, referendum yeah. up north oh yeah, yeah I'm aware of that but, uh, imagine yeah. if it's well, that yeah, but she, yeah we're all just gonna vote we yeah vote. but you have to remember she's in power up there too oh I know yeah she's but I just thought the way you would do a yeah, well, yeah yeah well MP 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 it's MP I don't know yeah member of parliament yeah member of parliament yeah but um yeah so I mean like I think the Irish can understand the struggle more than anything, especially the Palestinians with the IRA and stuff mm-hmm. like that. I mean, again, I've listened to the Troubles podcast and what the IRA did and what the UVF were doing and what the fucking UDA were doing and what the INLA were doing. And it's all awful, terrible shit. The main fucking thing that everybody should be taking away from all of this is none of this should be fucking happening in this modern day and age. No. There's no reason why people can't just sit down and have a civilized fucking discussion and sort this fucking shit out. I know that's a very, very simplistic and innocent and fucking gullible way of looking at things. Mm-hmm. But, I, I mean, at least like I said to you, I think I said it last week in an episode or something, like in one of our episodes, if you're going to have to fucking fight, and if you have to have soldiers fighting soldiers, and have soldiers fighting soldiers, fucking dedicate a specific battleground there and go have a specific battleground. There shouldn't be any civilian no. class at all. No, no, no. It's Not these people can do fucking today, regular right? women and kids that are fucking uh, having their lives destroyed yeah. and yeah. fucking ruined and fucking murdered, raped, mm-hmm. fucking blown up to pieces, all for dirt. Yeah. Another plot of dirt to say is yours. That you're going to fight over again in the next generation, most likely. And, boy, and it's fucking ridiculous. Like, I mean, especially in a day and age where, like, I think... Right, some religions have fallen off in the sense of they're, they're going away. But others have learned to, like, that they used to fight, have learned to kind of deal with, with each other. Mm-hmm. I mean, we have mosques in Ireland, though, that would never have been there before, do you know? So, I mean, like, where those cultures can mix together Absolutely. and live in one fucking country without being total chaos. A country does not have to be dedicated by its religious fucking belief, do you know? Yeah. I mean, I'm Irish, but my religious belief is more along the lines of what the fucking Norwegians fucking believed in. Yeah, oh yeah. Do you know, I, I I take a lot of it from the Celtic, but that's because we mix so fucking much with them that they're, they're very versatile. That is it, and yeah. when I say that, it's most of you just pagan European religion in general. Mm. But, I mean, yeah, so, again... I think uh, this is the only time we're really going to get political on the show, and it's, it's so... Just to say that, like, in our opinion, when it comes to this kind of thing, you think the Jewish people would know better. The Jewish people in Israel, the Israeli people in power, not the regular Jewish people, but the people in power would know better than to... It's like the fucking line in Batman. As fucked up as it can. I am going to fucking... What was that one? You... you, um, you live long enough to... you rather die a hero or live long, long enough, enough to see yourself become the villain. Yeah. And that's what it feels like with the Jews. They've they've finally... Not to do the Israelis. The Israeli people. The Jewish people in Israel have become what they were fucking running and hiding from. Not hiding from, running and trying to protect themselves from. Yeah. Yeah. And they're doing it now to somebody else. And it's just like... The bullied has become the bully. And then the the problem is the bigger, badder bullies like, you know, the US government and shit are right behind them, poking them in the back going, yeah, go on, go on, do it, 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 do
Do it, go on. <laughs> I think America is ADHD. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, God. Anyway, the reason we talk about that mm-hmm. is because of the story we're going to get into today. And it is an example of how the Jewish people were treated. Were, well, not just treated. We kind of see what happens in these kind of war time events. I mean, you're going to get into a little piece here for us in a minute, mm-hmm. taken from the Holocaust Encyclopedia, that will kind of sum up what it was not just what the nazis did to the jewish people or what the bad people did but what the regular person had to uh, had to do when it came to dealing with jewish people with the gestapo's stomping around the place yeah. fucking watching everything you were doing yeah you know yeah so i think we're going to get into that next Yes. So as we said, the following is from the Holocaust Encyclopedia. So ordinary people behaved in a variety of ways during the Holocaust. Motives ranged from pressures to conform and defer to authorities to opportunism and greed to hatred. In many places, the persecution of Jews occurred against a backdrop of centuries of anti-Semitism. In Germany, many individuals who are not zealous Nazis nonetheless participated in varying degrees of the persecution and murder of Jews and other victims. Following the German occupation, countless people in other countries also cooperated in the persecution of Jews. Everywhere, there were witnesses on the sidelines who cheered on the active participants in the persecution and violence. Most, however, remained silent. Throughout the 1930s, many Germans assisted the Nazi regime's efforts to remove Jews from Germany's political, social, economic and cultural life. Nazi activists, local Nazi leaders and members of Nazi parliamentary organisations, the SA and SS and the Hitler Youth, used intimidation against Jews and non-Jews to enforce Nazi social and cultural norms. For example, they harassed Germans who entered Jewish stores or who showed friendliness towards Jews. But even Germans who did not share the extreme Nazi belief that the Jews were a source of racial pollution participated in varying degrees in Jewish Jewish persecution. For instance, members of sports clubs, book groups and other voluntary associations expelled Jews. Teenagers within schools and universities enjoyed their newfound freedom to harass Jewish classmates or even adults. Many ordinary Germans became involved when they acquired Jewish businesses homes or belongings sold at bargain prices and benefited from reduced business competition as Jews were driven from the economy. With such gains, these individuals developed a stake in the ongoing persecution. Some landlords and neighbours denounced tenants or other individuals for private behaviour they observed. This included the crime of racial defilement, sexual relations between Jews and other persons of German or related blood, or violations of paragraph 175 of the German Criminal Code, which prohibited homosexuality. Germans who did not play an active role responded to Jewish persecution in diverse ways. Large numbers went along passively with the exclusion of Jews from the workplaces and with their isolation within schools and communities. Others cheered as onlookers to events such as public parades to shame those accused of racial defilement. It's fucking crazy. The parallels. Mm-hmm. <laughs> What's going on now, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Nazi policies and actions combined with the response of elite and ordinary Germans culminated in the near total isolation of Jews from German society by the late 1938. 
Although many Germans approved of the marginalization of Jews, they disapproved of the violence and destruction of property that occurred during the Nazi-led programs of November 9th to 10th in 1938. However, few spoke out. The same was true during the deportations of Jews from Germany after World War II began. In areas where the deportations did provoke some discontent, Nazi propagandists simply strengthened their efforts to promote acceptance of the removal of the enemy within. I swear to God, I nearly made the mistake of asking, where did David deport them to? And then I remembered. The fucking concentration camps. Yep. <laughs> uh, varying motivations influenced responses to the persecution of Jews and created a climate of passivity. Pass, passivity? Passivity or apathy. Uh, motivations range from belief in Nazi ideology to fear to self-interest. For instance, Nazi propaganda efforts heightened long-standing anti-Semitic prejudices and led many to view the Jews as alien. Like Na- real aliens or alien to the country? Or did they think they were like Jewish men? Jewish alien to from the all country, space? but the Nazis were known for all their like weird <laughs> kind of... Yeah. Yeah. They had their space programs. Yeah. And then they go after like mythical objects as well. And they go looking for the Holy Grail and shit and fucking did. Odin spear and stuff. And didn't they believe like in X-Men? Like, the or whole is that just Marvel? What? Yeah, they did an experiment, yeah. Yeah. On kids. Yeah, yeah. Jewish kids. Mengele. The Nazis were also in near total control of public space. Government censorship prevented dissenting voices from being heard and few Germans had the courage to speak out publicly against the persecution of Jews. They were aware of the risk that outspoken dissidents faced in a police state and where opponents of the regime could be arbitrarily arrested and present in concentration camps without trial. Pressures to defer to authority and obey laws and decrees were present even without the added intimidation by Nazi activists. Many people wanted to protect their jobs or advance their careers. Others did not want to swim against the tide by failing to conform to Nazi racist norms. Most cut off relations with Jewish friends and neighbours in public, if not in private. The factor of fear and intimidation should not be overstated, however, for it implies that people wanted to help the persecuted. For many Germans their livelihoods and well-being of their families were simply at much higher priority than a group who represented a tiny fraction of the population and who was constantly demonized as a dangerous threat. As Germany's economy and global standing improved during the 1930s, the majority of Germans, including many who never voted for Hitler and who did not identify as Nazi, supported the positive changes and overlooked the threats to Jews and other Nazi targets. Many more people came under direct Nazi rule once the war began. The manner in which ordinary people in these areas responded to the persecution of Jews varied depending on factors such as country, region, degree of Nazi control, existing hostility towards Jews and the perceptions about whether Germany would win the war and remain the master of Europe. After the invasion of Poland in 1939, Western and Southern Europe in 1940 and the Soviet Union in 1941, German forces became thinly stretched across vast occupied areas. They needed tens of thousands of non-Germans from local officials and police to ordinary citizens to help implement occupation policies, including measures that targeted Jews and other victims of Nazism. 
In regions of Eastern Europe, under direct Nazi rule, non-Germans helped carry out Nazi policies, including uh, ghettoization and forced labor of Jews, the seizure or transfer of Jewish property, and the roundup and transport of Jews to the killing sites. During Nazi-organized mass shootings of Jews, communists, Roma, and psychiatric patients in Soviet territories, tens of thousands of non-German auxiliary police served as guards and killers. So it's fucked up. It's like they'd make them like fucking dig their graves, like yeah. and just gone. That's it. Local government officials recruited others to work as clerks, grave diggers, wagon drivers, and cooks. Some locals at times, on their own initiative, violently attacked Jews, robbing and killing them. The motives of non-Germans who participated in the persecution and murder of Jews in Nazi-ruled Eastern Europe varied. Nazi propaganda reinforced long-standing local anti-Semitic prejudices. Ideologically driven individuals were free to act within the climate of licensed violence against Jews. I was just about to ask that question. Would they have had to have kept up the facade a little bit of having a proper country and prosecute people for murdering regular Jewish people? Or was it just like fucking full on the purge when it came to Jewish people? You, if you saw a Jew and you just decided you wanted to kill him, you could just fucking walk right over, fucking stab him and walk off and no one's going to do shit because it's Nazi Germany. Right, yeah. Or would you be arrested and... I would assume that maybe you would be arrested, but if if you ran away and they found the body and they'd be like, "That's just a joke." Yeah, there's <laughs> no point in looking into it. Yeah. Anything like, yeah, it would be like they say about like um, they say about like uh, black prostitutes in um, America. They call them the less dead. Yeah, yeah. And it's just because when a cop comes and they find a black prostitute, they're just going to be like, "No one's going to go looking for them." you know they bought this on themselves they knew what they were getting into fuck it yeah Yeah. we're not going to be able to find a killer so why bother even trying yeah in places that the soviets occupied between 1939 and 1941 local populations often blamed jews as a group for oppressive soviet policies German propagandists aimed to deepen such animosity by constantly linking Jews and communists to a mythical Judeo-Bolshevik threat. Tens of thousands of men joined auxiliary police forces or militias. Among their motivations for joining were the need for employment, income and food or the opportunity for gain, including self-enrichment from looted property. Some men aimed to prove loyalty to new German masters. Others sought the opportunity to avenge the suffering for their families under Soviet rule or to settle other scores. Radical nationalists in Ukraine and the Baltics, as Lithuania, Latvia and Estonia, cooperated with the Germans because they hoped that the Germans would reward them by allowing them to establish independent, ethnically homogenous states, hopes that were not realized. Local policemen were drafted in to help uh, guard the ghettos sealed off areas of town where Jews were forced to live in appalling conditions during the liquidation of the ghettos these forces assisted the SS and other German police in the roundups and assembly of Jews for deportation to their deaths at Nazi killing centres not all regular peace, police were eager collaborators but they feared the consequences of disobeying German orders in the countryside some local police along with volunteer firefighters participated in Jew hunts other locals informed on Jews in hiding. Jew hunts sounds like the start of Django Unchained. 
Do you know when the Gestapo come to the house to It's not freaking Django and shit. You keep doing this. Fuck it. Sorry, here for late. Sorry. You did that during the week as well. Right? It's you because were of the your Nazis man from Django. Django I was like, when the, did I miss it? Did the Nazi in, 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 in here for late being in Django Unchained just keeps knocking me off? I know, I get you. <laughs> That's the only reason. <laughs> but every time you do it, it knocks me know, off. I'm centuries off. <laughs> Especially with that one. We're like, is that the start of Django? Django, and I'm like, the boy, the Nazis were running after him when he escaped. <laughs> time traveling Nazis, <laughs> they're gonna get them all. <laughs> they found out about slavery in the US at the time, they're like, you know what? That sounds like a time for us. That's time traveled in there. <laughs> <laughs> the opportunity for gain, either through payment by the Germans or the taking of Jewish belongings, tempted Jew hunters in the countryside and cities. Blackmailers threatened to inform on Jews in hiding in order to extort money and belongings from them. Yeah, I imagine instantly when I heard Jew hunters. I just like I, to point out that's an inverted comma. By the yeah. It's, yeah. All I can picture is if it was modern time, it's dog the bounty hunter. <laughs> dog the <laughs> Jew hunter. <laughs> the Jew hunter. Dun, 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 dun. We, we all know Dog the Bounty Hunter is racist. <laughs> I'd never watched him enough to know that he was. I was obsessed. It was one of those kind of ones. You just quite, pieces like. it, 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 it's something you become obsessed with, but it's so repetitive that you'll eventually become bored of. Yeah. So you'll watch. It's like cops. You'll watch a shitload of cops for like a, a couple of weeks, and then it's it's the same thing over and over and over and over and over and over again. And it's the same with Dog the Bounty Hunter. It is funny. It's exciting, and it's fun to watch him chase the criminal's own and do the whole praise Jesus, go with Christ, have a say. Because have you watched it properly? Like Dog is like real I, mean. Religious. Yeah. He's, no, but he's real mean when he's chasing him down and he as soon as he has him cuffed his attitude will change instantly and he'll be like you want a cigarette bro and he'll put a fag in their mouth and he'll light it up for him and he'll be like is that the cameras? oh well see he's a former um, criminal himself okay and he's born again and all this kind of shit no I think he did get in trouble for some racist comments not so long ago and I did find it weird that when Beth died, his wife died, he got married like within a year again to a, another blonde lady. Yeah. I liked Beth. Beth was funny as well. She was like this fucking... I uh, remember her. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. A real kind of southern fucking woman. Mm. <laughs> she, she, she was... Uh, I, I enjoyed like, her like mostly in the show. Yeah, 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 yeah. It was all ice. Gotta get that ice off the street, bro. <laughs> <laughs> Go with Christ. <laughs> oh, the the soap Park fucking parody of it just did, did it perfectly. Yeah. So, yes, some locals hid Jews at first, but then turned them in out of fear that they and their families would be shot if the Jews were discovered. By G- by dog, the Jew hunter. In other parts of Europe that were allied with or occupied by Nazi Germany, some leaders and public officials helped more or less zealously to implement anti-Jewish policies. Measures included enacting discriminatory laws and decrees regarding citizenship, employment and business ownership and confiscated Jewish property. In some cases, such as in Romania, Hungary, Italy, Hungary, 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 that's like when I called uh, call German, Germania, uh, Germania. You see, that happens to me with Canada, Germania. Canada, Canada. 
Romania, Hungary, Italy, Bulgaria and France. Non-German leaders motivated by homegrown anti-Semitism, racism and nationalism acted on their own initiative. In all other countries within the German sphere of domination, they helped identify, register and mark Jews. Members of regular police and military trained gendarme gendarme forces rounded up Jews and assembled them for transport to the east. The Nazis disguised these deportations as resettlement for labor. Non-German railway workers transported deportees to the border. The presence of Jew hunters, some of them ideologically aligned with the Nazis and many of them attempted by the law of monetary rewards, reduced the possibility of Jew survival in hiding. This was the case even in a country like the Netherlands, where homegrown hostility towards Jews was not that prevalent before the war. <clears throat> in general, the Germans' ability to leverage their power to win cooperation from non-Germans was much greater before their defeat at Stalingrad, which was in the winter of 1942 to 1943, a major turning point in the war. Many Europeans who had thought Germany would remain the master of Europe into the foreseeable future began to envision the possibility of German defeat. They became less eager to participate in actions that they might be held accountable for after the war. Changing perceptions about the outcome of the war also emboldened organised resistance efforts. By the fall of 1943, the likelihood of German defeat was strong. By this time, however, it was too late for most of Europe's Jews. Five million were dead. A small minority of individuals, alone or in organised networks, took risks to help Jews. Aid came in several forms. Some offered gestures of solidarity, and in Paris, for example, some non-Jews wore Star of David badges in protest. In some German cities, non-Jews sometimes greeted Jews wearing the star. Other individuals risked punishment and death by attempting to save them. They hid Jews during roundups, provided them food, alerted them to danger, and safeguarded their belongings. Now, I know what you're thinking. We're 50 minutes in to a true crime horror podcast and these two have just talked about politics now i promise you that what amy just read out is extremely vital and important to the bloody revenge story we are about to embark on we felt the need to put the part in at the start about the israeli-palestine conflict because i we didn't want people to think through this story that we were sympathizing with the Israelis in any way, shape or form. If anything, we feel this is a story that what we read out at the start should be more like a lesson of look at fucking your past and try not to be the bad that you're running from, as I've said before. But again, we needed to just put our position in place before getting in to this story, which is based around post-World War II and, as you were saying there, the treatment of the Jews throughout World War II in Germany. Mm. Not so much by the Nazis in this case, but by the general German public or Nazi sympathizers or people who just went along with the status quo. Yeah. And that's what will bring us into the story of the revenge of the von Sturms. Hey, you. Yeah, you. You like the podcast? 
Once more? Then head on over to our Patreon page where for just five euro a month you get up to 12 extra shows in that month along with piles of mini-sodes covering fun facts from the world of horror and true crime. Each week we drop multiple shows such as Real Monsters where we look at the inspiration behind the movie killers or Behind the Mask where we take a look at the influential people and happenings in the world of Hollywood. All this plus movie reviews, watch-alongs and regular AMAs. That means ask me anything. You really do get a bang for your buck. And, and by bang I mean like podcast. I'm not soliciting or anything. Shit. Um, moving on. For just five euro a month, all this could be yours. So head on over to www.patreon.com forward slash IAA pod. That's www.patreon.com forward slash IAA pod and start listening now. So the story we're going to tell today is rooted in the many war crimes committed, not just by the Nazis, but the greedy few who ventured to gain and take advantage of the Jewish plight and persecution throughout and after World War II. The Von Sturm case was a chilling true crime tale that unfolded in 1966, sending shockwaves through the communities of 1960s Britain. This intriguing and sinister story captured the attention of the nation, leaving the public both fascinated and horrified by the events that transpired. During this tumultuous time in history, Britain was undergoing significant social and cultural changes. The swinging 60s brought about a sense of liberation and freedom, but alongside it, there was also a growing unease and anxiety. It was against this backdrop that the Von Sturm's case emerged, adding to the mounting sense of fear and uncertainty. The case centered around a series of mysterious and brutal murders that seemed to defy explanation. The victims, all prominent figures in their respective fields, were found brutally slain, their bodies arranged in a grotesque manner. The macabre details that stood out in each crime scene was the presence of an eerie doll strategically placed near the bodies. The nation was gripped by fear as the killer dubbed the psychopath by the media remained at large, continuing to strike without warning. The brutality and precision with which the murders were carried out suggest a cunning and methodical killer, leaving investigators perplexed and the public on edge. The psychological impact of the Von Sturm's case cannot be understated. It unleashed a wave of paranoia and fear as people began to question the safety of their own homes and communities. The concept of a faceless, sadistic killer lurking in the shadows struck fear in the hearts of many, leading to a heightened sense of vigilance and suspicion. The public's insatiable appetite for true crime stories propelled the case into the spotlight with newspapers and television channels providing daily updates on the investigation. In this episode, we will delve deeper into the victims and the mysterious dolls, explore the investigation and the growing suspicion on the Van Strum family. We'll we'll uncover the tragic backstory of the accused and ultimately witness the confrontation and the end of the Van Sturms reflecting on the aftermath of the case and its lasting legacy. So as we said earlier, outside of the obvious atrocities and laws broken throughout World War II, there were those outside of the political sphere whose only motivation for causing suffering pain were greed, power and self-preservation. While the Nazis held power, those people felt untouchable, from the law anyway. 
I'm sure the Gestapo kept even the most hardened Nazi supporters on their toes constantly. But this safety net wasn't to last because, as we all know, the Nazis lost the war and Hitler shot himself. Or, you know, moved to Argentina under a new alias. Who knows? <laughs> Alex Jones alert. Just see me sweating, spitting over here and red-faced while I tell you all about the Nazi scientists, put the fr- how they put the first man on the moon, but the moon landing is fake. So what did they need the Nazi scientists for, Amy? What did they need the scientists for? Story for another episode, I think. Yep, and I know the episode too, but as you said, that's Ooh, for later. <laughs> so with the Nazis defeated, the true, true scope of their crimes came to light with concentration camps such as Auschwitz being shown to the vast public audience for the first time. This was evil like we had never seen before, which meant the world's individual governments had to come together to work out how to deal with the aftermath of the war and its related crimes. Amy, I think you have a little piece on that. Sure do so. So this comes from ConAcademy.org. Con is in K-A-H-N, not Con. Tony Khan. <laughs> yeah. Oh, is it? Yeah. Oh. So since the end of the Second World War, international states have agreed on the importance of basic human rights. Despite the widespread acceptance of human rights in theory, however, in practice, proponents face a dilemma between human rights and national sovereignty. You may remember that national sovereignty is the idea that nation states have the right to exist and to be free from interference. Governments can do whatever they wish to whomever they wish inside their own borders. In the second half of the 20th century, people began to make arguments for human rights of individual people over the rights of governments. Human rights and international laws that protect those rights are direct challenges to national sovereignty. Two events in one city in southern Germany show how World War II changed how people thought about national sovereignty and human rights. On September 15, 1935, at a Nazi party rally in Nuremberg, Germany, the Nazi leadership enacted a set of laws known as the Nuremberg Laws. By singling out Germany's Jewish population, these laws aimed to create a homogenous society. The laws came from Nazi ideology, an extreme form of eugenics and social Darwinism. These ideas were popular with imperialists in the 19th and early 20th century, and the Nuremberg laws defined German laws not by their religious beliefs, but by their ancestry. They took away their citizenship and placed restrictions on their employment and ability to marry. So what do you mean? Oh, they could only marry out of the Jews. Yeah, Yeah, exactly, Uh, So Hitler used the Nuremberg laws to portray Jews as the enemy of the German people. These laws set set the stage for the atrocities of the Holocaust and helped build Hitler's justification for purging German society of anyone he felt was not a pure German. In addition to Jews, the Nazis murdered millions of disabled, black, Roma and gay people who did not fit their racial ideology. The atrocities that the Nuremberg Laws enabled are stunning examples of the dangers of unlimited power. The Nuremberg Laws enforced Hitler's beliefs that he could do whatever he wanted to whomever he wanted inside his borders. After the war ended in 1945, the victorious Allied powers wanted to establish a peaceful world order. So they debated the role of human rights in ensuring world peace. Nazi atrocities and aggression convinced them to take international action to prevent future such acts and war from happening again. 
Inspired by the Atlantic Charter and President Franklin Roosevelt's Four Freedoms speech, human rights advocates argued that international recognition of human rights was necessary to ensure peace and security. Debates about human rights were central at the San Francisco Conference in 1945 as the Allies met and created the United Nations. The Charter of the United Nations was signed by 50 countries in San Francisco in June of 1945. It contains a paradox. Its introduction and the very first article state a faith in fundamental human rights. The very next part of the Charter, Article 2, guarantees national sovereignty and forbids the United Nations from getting involved in any matters within the domestic jurisdiction of any state. See, I was going to ask when you said earlier about like how this was done to stop um, a country from having unlimited power like Hitler had, how they were getting away with it in Korea. Mm. And obviously, you just explained it there. That's how they're getting away with it in Korea because there is a loophole to you're not allowed to do that, but at the same time, we're not allowed to stop you from doing that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Rule one don't do it. Rule two we won't stop you if you do. <laughs> <laughs> do you know what's annoying me? What? I can say sovereignty, right? Mm. If it's not coming after a word, but if I put a word in front of it, I can only say sovereignty. I'm saying it wrong the whole time. Oh, right, that's okay, because I thought it wasn't sovereignty when you said it. No, it's know. sovereign. It, it, I can't, I can't. In a it sense, doesn't matter. People know, anyway, people know. Yeah, just in case you're that. like, what the fuck is that word? This is a paradox. Well, what we just explained is a paradox because an international organization like the United Nations cannot prevent or punish human rights abuses by governments if those governments are allowed to do whatever they wish inside their national borders. The Nuremberg trials, which started just five months after the signing of the United Nations Charter, addressed this paradox. The early plans for the trials were first discussed at the San Francisco Conference. In a remarkable display of cooperation, the United States, the Soviet Union, Great Britain and France agreed to bring the leadership of the Nazi Party to trial. These trials helped to take ideas uh, about human rights and turn them into formal international laws. This was the first time in history that the international community prosecuted the leaders of major power. So this will be the first time, basically, where you had a, a country sue a country or bring a country to court. Yeah. yeah. Uh, not just a person, it's literally a whole, country, a whole government is being, is brought, being to brought to trial. Like. trial exactly. Okay. Exactly. And, and, you know, and you know you are on the wrong side. You know you're the bad guy. If the Russian government are on the other side going, no, 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 you're in trouble. <laughs> <laughs> We're agreeing with the, with America on this one. Then you know you fucked up and that you're I in trouble. I remember being younger and hearing <laughs> that and being very surprised because I thought that oh, they were on... Oh, no, sooner was this done and they were fucking uh, the Cold War started. So the Nuremberg trials were a total of 13 trials of Nazi officials held from 1945 to 1949. They were held in the same city where a decade earlier Hitler had declared the Nuremberg Laws. The first of these trials is the most significant. The United States, Soviet Union, the United Kingdom and France hosted this first trial called the International Military Tribunal. The subsequent 12 trials were hosted by the United States alone, foreshadowing the later Cold War tensions between the United States and the Soviet Union. See, The trials sought to hold Germany's leaders accountable for crimes so serious that they required jurisdiction or authority beyond the borders of any one state. Crimes against peace, war crimes, and crimes against humanity. So basically, the world against... Exactly, uh, yeah. yeah. 
the world versus Germany in in court. Yep. Yep. Um, pretty much like everything that came out, like Saddam Hussein, all that and that. No. But Saddam, I think, would but have been. But see, that's a war crime where he would have been held accountable. How much? How many of his actual? There was a few because there was definitely were. one that was hung, but then he got decapitated because he was so heavy. Do you remember that? I, I that was on. I didn't see it. I heard about a it, lot of people like, like when, when these things happen. A lot of people go looking for those. I don't. Like those I, 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 I'm not. Yeah, I'm no, not, not not the. I'm not all about the germ. The the, the journalist decapitation. In like this guy was just in general. Was, even yeah, fucking no, Saddam's. Yeah. I watched Saddam's video up until the point where he actually got hung. I didn't. Uh, see I, 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 didn't I saw see him march him to the gallows, put the fucking thing around his neck, <clears> and then I was like, no, I don't want to see this, yeah. and I turned it off. And that was the only time I've kind of seen yeah. real death on on video uh, but I stopped it just short of it I, yeah. I didn't want to so the nature of the crimes just mentioned uh, crimes against peace war crimes and crimes against humanity uh, the allies argued required an international solution the Nuremberg trials were something new they represented the idea that states and national leaders couldn't could be punished not just for aggression towards other nations as had been the case after World War I but also for violating the rights of their own citizens for their part, the German leaders on trial defended their actions on the grounds of national sovereignty. Good job. The high-ranking Nazi official Hermann Göring insisted, that was our right. We were a sovereign state and that was strictly our business. But the Nuremberg trials rejected the principle that a government could do whatever it wanted inside its own borders. Göring was convicted and sentenced to death. He committed suicide in his jail cell the night before his execution. Fucking coward. Which leads us nicely into the story of Karl von Sturm, as he would also meet a similar end to Hermann Goring. Only difference is he didn't deserve the punishment he was having doled out to him. You see, Karl von Sturm was a successful industrialist in Germany, both before and during the war. Any idea what industry he's in? From what I read, he kind of had his hand in a bit of everything from clothing factories to toy manufacturing. When the war ended, the innocent people of Germany, Europe and the world wanted to see someone held responsible for the atrocities committed to the Jewish people and their sympathizers. And with Hitler tanning on the beaches of Argentina came the Nuremberg trials we spoke of earlier. The high-profile trials were just that, for high-profile, unapologetic, hardcore Nazis who were, to the most part, set to meet a firing squad for their crimes. While these high-profile trials took place to deal with the main shock callers of the Nazi party, the world made sure not to forget about the little guy, as smaller commissions were put together to investigate, prosecute, and convict Nazi sympathizers and criminals who profited from the suffering of others during the war. Karl von Sturm found himself in front of one of these commissions, accused of using Jewish slave labour in his factories throughout the reign of the Third Reich. The four men he faced on the commission, Reinhard Klermer, Frank Seville, Victor Ledoux and Martin Roth, all acquaintances of the accused. See, I thought when you named him out, it was nice and partial mix. I'm guessing Clermer is German, Ledoux is French, and Seville and Roth are British. Yep. Seville sounds French, though, but he was a Brit. Ah, yeah, but all of that impartialness goes out the window when you find out that they're actually mates. Yeah, but not in the way you think. 
You see, if convicted by one of these commissions, punishments could range from anything from fines to imprisonment, as well as having all assets seized. Kind of in the same way cab will seize your assets here. If it's seen as a proceeds of crime and you can't show a legitimate source up for your income, then the Criminal Assets Bureau will seize your assets until you can prove a legitimate source of income or pay a settlement tax bill that usually is in the hundreds of thousands, if not millions. It's kind of the law way of saying fuck you to criminals they know are involved in organized crime but they can't catch them in the, with, tradi- uh, with traditional evidence kind of like Al Capone getting done for a tax evasion when they couldn't pin any real crimes on him just here they take all your assets and leave you with nothing instead of giving you jail time and they do it over and over again so the criminal will build up his money and assets back up and cab will come in and take it all back and put you back to square one or at least like that's how it's supposed to work yeah <laughs> Right, so as you said, with Carl on trial and his four business acquaintances as his jury, Carl felt confident he would be cleared of all charges. No justice. You're right, because while Carl was guilty of shunning potential employees for being Jewish, he was not guilty of slave labor. Ooh, plot twist. Like we said earlier, even the Germans who despised the Nazis and what they stood for still had to or chose to follow the status quo out of self-preservation. The Gestapo were nothing to fuck with. The Gestapo were the official political police in Nazi Germany and later occupied Europe. The term Gestapo means secret state police in German and the organization was one of the most significant internal Nazi groups to enforce the political will of Adolf Hitler. As I said earlier, even the Nazis were afraid of the Gestapo. Imagine Hitler as Palpatine and the most evil man in the universe and he has a whole army of Darth Vaders instead of shitty stormtroopers. Yeah. That's basically what it fucking was like, you know? Yeah. Yeah. They were basically like the CIA for fucking for for um hitler but they were specifically hunting down jews, jews and yeah. jewish sympathizers yeah, yeah. and uh rebels and mm. anybody that went against the, the the nazi rule anyway even if carl was guilty of prejudice through fear he was innocent of slave labor charges which made it all the more surprising to him when his friends found him guilty of all charges sentencing him to life imprisonment and seizing all his assets and funds but they were business acquaintances like surely they visited his factories in the past and would know that he was a legitimate businessman like him following the rules yep they also knew how much all those factories were worth. Mm. Thing is, at this time, portions of seized assets and funds had a tendency to fall through the cracks of the system and usually found their way into the pockets of the men tasked with presiding over these commissions. Evil and greed didn't die with Hitler, and these men felt they were owed something by these German men who towed the line instead of showing resistance and solidarity with the Allies. So for that, they rationalized that it would only be fair to make von Sturm suffer for his cowardness, falsely falsifying documents and taking his wealth to divide amongst themselves. Karl von Sturm, devastated, took his life in prison only two weeks into his life sentence, leaving behind his widow Hedwig and their young son, Mark, who out of shame now bought to their family name, left to find refuge in England as Hedwig von Sturm set out to clear her husband's name and regain their rightful assets and good name in decent society only problem is she didn't realize just yet who was to blame and use reinhardt clermer as the solicitor in the case 
Reinhard had confided in Mark von Strum many years after his father's death that there was no evidence to be found and he had to give up the investigation. But due to Hedwig's already fragile mental state, that living in hope would be better for her than revealing the truth. What Reinhardt didn't know at the time, though, was Mark had already began his own investigation and had, necessar- and had the necessary proof he needed in documentation stolen from Kelmer's office, a fact Kelmer wouldn't realize until 6 p.m. on the night of his death. One hour later, he would be mowed down by a red 1962 Volvo as he rushed to a music session with his co-conspirators. It was here he planned to inform them of his suspicion of Mark von Sturm and what he might know. But he was stopped at 7pm when a red Volvo ran him over, then back and over again. Then one more time for good luck. Along with Reinhard Klemmer's mangled body lay his smash violin and a doll. The doll was custom made and was a perfect resemblance of the now deceased solicitor. Now we I mentioned a little bit back there that they felt that Hedwig von Sturm's, Mrs. von Sturm's, so I keep calling him Strum because that's why I misspelt them during the week and I was calling him Strum for half the week while I was writing the script. But it's Sturm. Sturm. It's Sturm. But um, basically after her husband's death, she got basically mental paralysis is what it is. She believes she is um, a uh, paralyzed from the waist down pretty much she, like, she can't oh, walk she's okay. power to walk so she's she's confined to a wheelchair her mental state isn't great so that's why um, Reinhardt here was saying oh well, we really shouldn't tell Hedwig what's going on because at least with hope it'll keep her going but if I confirmed her that her husband was using Jewish slave labor it'd yeah. kill her do you yeah. know yeah. so it might be better to keep it hidden now uh, the thing about it is a part of her mental health issues and ways she dealt with it was over the, I don't know, was it 19 years or so since her husband had died? Yeah. She had started collecting dolls. So her house was jam-packed. And I mean jam Like when cops like went in there after all this was said and done, mm. I think they brought out somewhere close to 130 to 150 dolls custom made by her she had a workshop she um she built these things a hobby. it would be except she referred to them as her children and she had uh, had no real connection with humans she didn't trust humans anymore after what happened to her husband so she basically only conversed with her son and with the dolls who she referred to as her kids that's it Okay. So they were like she'd have dinner party, you know, dinner parties, with fucking tea parties with the dolls, dressing them up, mm. change them, had dead walking around the house, talking to them randomly. Well, not walking, wheeling herself around the house. But uh, and again, I will so have to the stress guys that marry the dolls. Now. Huh? It's like the guys that marry the dolls now. What in Japan? Yeah. Yeah, it's creepy. But um, again, I, I I stress as well. Her paralysis was mental. She was it was it was basically brought on by stress of her situation. Yeah. Because she was determined. She did not believe that her husband was guilty of these crimes and she was like hell bent 
on proving it and getting her status back and getting all her assets back and getting her and clearing her husband's name. Like she yeah. loved her husband. She wanted to clear the man's fucking name. She knew that he had been falsely accused. Like mm. she just didn't know by who right there, yeah. right then and there. Okay, it's honesty time. We have a confession to make. We suck at socials. No good at Insta. Can't send a tweet or an X or whatever that super villain looking motherfucker is calling it now. Stick to your space cars, Elon. But we know you want to chat. You want to be kept updated. You want to be alive alive all the goddamn time. So we're getting down from the anti-social soapbox and giving this a try. So come chat to us on Insta and Twitter at Alive Alive Pod or hit us up by email at itsalivealivepod at gmail.com. We want to hear from you. Tell us what you like, what you don't like. This is a project. It's still a work in progress and we just want to give you more what you like and less of what you can't stand. So give us a like, give us a follow. We'll always hit you back and we'll always try to reply to everyone. So come say hi. We don't bite. Well... At least Amy doesn't. And she keeps me well fed, so you got nothing to worry about. Now, back to the show! <laughs> so, Inspector Patrick Holloway was assigned to the case, and after examining the scene, decided to follow on Clarimer's intended path to the residence of Franksville, where the quartet had arranged to meet for a posh boy jam fest. After a quick round of questioning where the inspector collected alibis, Holloway inquired as to what exactly was going on in Clarimer's personal and professional life that may have led to his untimely death. The remaining three co-conspirators remained tight-lipped on the past situation with Von Sturm, unsure at this point as to whether Clarimer's death was related to their past indiscretion, but suspicious enough to stay quiet. They knew Clarimer had wanted to talk to them about something important that night at the musical meeting, but, you know, he hadn't said over the phone what exactly it was. It was just something he was going to bring up to them at the meeting at Seville's house. So with no evidence to go on outside of a doll and alibis being provided by all suspects, Holloway excused himself and called in a night. With nothing left to do but wait for lab analysis to provide him with more information on the doll and the homicidal car. The next morning, Holloway headed straight for the lab to see what evidence or clues he would be working with. The car was narrowed down to a stolen 1962 Vauxhall that had been robbed from the local hospital a few hours previous to the murder. It had gone unreported as stolen as the owner of the car coincidentally died on the operating table in the hospital that morning. The doll was traced back to a local toy store where Frank Savile's daughter Louise happened to work. Records there showed that only six of these dolls had been sold recently and that they were to a Mrs. Hedwig von Sturm. Well, we've already discussed Hedwig and her obsession and her workshop, so we don't need to get into that again. Savile. I don't know why I kept calling them the Savilles. I kept making that mistake as well, and I kept looking at them going, it's like Jimmy Savile. Why the fuck do I keep calling them Savilles? That's why they're fucking British. Yeah, Savile. There's this place, Seville is the place. Yeah but, that's, uh, yeah, but I kept reading it as that. Oh, but yeah, yeah. obviously it's Savile. Savile. Fucking idiot. Jesus. <laughs> I'm telling you, this should be the no-name podcast. That's what we should just call ourselves. <laughs> so this information was enough to warrant a visit from the inspector, who, needless to say, was a little disturbed by Mrs. Von Sturm's extended imaginary family. After giving the inspector the grand tour, she brought him to her workshop, where Holloway showed her the doll of Clermer and asked if it was one of hers. She instantly recognized the doll as being that of her solicitor, but insisted she had not been its creator. 
She was then informed of Mr. Clermer's death, to which she seemed to get extremely upset by. Remember, she still believed Clermer was working on clearing her husband's name, and with him gone, so goes the hope we spoke about earlier. Not to kill the tone of the thing completely, but we had to stop recording there because we caught the mouse. (laughs) 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 And we caught him in the humane trap. If you want to see, it'll be up on Instagram. I got it on video. I released him outside. You can see him running off into the darkness. I miss him. Cheesy Charlie. Yeah. When we got to free him. But at least he got the humane trap. He didn't get the uh, off with his head (laughs) trap. (laughs) That's so many other mice. I have I have definitely had cases of traps where I've went in and there's been blood splattered all no, over no, the place. No, 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 no. But uh, yeah, but no, he He's got the humane trap and he is off outside now running around. Unlike uh, poor Carl Von Sturm, Sturm who got locked up for life and killed himself there. <laughs> so, Pretty much like our mouse just got locked up. So um, anyway, as I was saying before, Cheesy Charlie interrupted our recording. Um, Mrs. Von Strom, a Sturm, Sturm, Hedwig, she found out about her solicitor's death at this point from uh, Inspector Holloway when he asked her about the doll. Mark Von Strom, hearing his mother in distress, entered the room and ushered the inspector away. He then proceeded to give Holloway a brief background of his family's misfortunes, calling his mother unstable and a shut-in, stating she never left the house and lived in a fantasy world with her dolls. Mark was the only man questioned with no witness to his alibi, as he was the lone night watchman on a dockyard, meaning he could easily come and go as he pleased. This mixed with the unsettling nature in which he spoke of his mother and the the family's past put him right at the top of Holloway's suspect list, but he needed more evidence before closing in on the killer. The inspector questioned both Victor Ledoux and Martin Roth in relation to Clarimer's death and his suspicion of Mark and Hedwig van Sturm. He questioned Ledoux on the possibility of one of the commission's members being shady or falsifying records. Ledoux Ledoux admitted it was a possibility, but pointed out that all four men were well off and didn't need money, so what would be their motivation? Greed, apparently. Well, yeah. (laughs) As we have learned when it comes to billionaires, they never have enough money. Mm. (laughs) Or millionaires or whatever it is. Has we're, there been a trillionaire? No, no. no billionaire is billionaire. as far as we're going. I mean, like uh, Elon Musk and uh, Bezos and all them, they're, mm. they're the richest people in the world. They're yeah. multi, multi-billionaires. So while he focused on the commission with Ledoux, with Roth, who was a doctor and the doctor of Mrs. Von Strom, Holloway focused more on her mental and physical ailments, hypothesizing that she was putting it all on and using it as a smokescreen for her murderous ways. Roth insisted this was very unlikely as he had been treating her for years and he was good enough at his job to spot when he was dealing with a fake and the real deal. A journal entry left by Roth revealed that the visit from Holloway had spooked him and that he was unsure if evidence proving his guilt had been found or was about to be revealed. He commented he was going to visit Ledoux that evening to discuss the situation and decide what to do next. 
In the meantime, Frank Seville, who suffered from a heart problem, had been dealing with chest pains brought on by the stress of the situation. His doctor, a Dr. Colin Glynn, prescribed him some medication and rest, but assured his daughter Louise that there was no need to worry. Someone switched out his medicine with cyanide, killing Seville with his first dose that night. The next day, Martin Roth and Victor Ledoux were found dead in Victor's art studio. Martin had been burnt to death with a blowtorch while Victor had been strangled and hung from a shower rail. Next to him hung an identical doll swinging in the breeze caused by the passing police. Roth and Seville's bodies were also accompanied by life-like dolls. Creepy, but with everybody involved dead now and the doll connection, does that not almost guarantee one, if not both, of the Von Sturms are the killers? Yep, but it's still just circumstantial evidence. Holloway wanted something concrete that would stick before he took Mark and Hedwig in for questioning. So with that, Inspector Holloway made a visit to Mark's place of work, the local shipping dock, questioning Mark again, leading him with his questions so as to almost let Mark know that the net was closing in. Mark was no fool, so with the writing on the wall, it led the inspector on a chase around the dockyard, where he tried to run him over with a runaway boat he had let loose from its slip. The boats, for some reason, I don't understand this, but they were kind of like on a slant. Do you know what I mean? It's almost like they were brought in kind of, I suppose, the car backing them down yeah, in. Yeah, yeah, that's yeah. why. But anyway, they'd be tied, they were kind of tied in oh, and he was letting them loose and they were coming down then so they were coming down and nearly killed inspector holloway and in the confusion mark hadn't noticed that he had also let loose a tie that held in place a ton of thick heavy chain usually used to hold the bigger boats in place mm. now when i say thick heavy chain i am talking about one link would be the size of our TV and size. Oh, easily, yeah. So yeah. Uh, this is fucking lengths and lengths of that just tumbling down on top of him. Um, Holloway convinced no man could survive such an extreme amount of metal hitting their body left to get reinforcements, the fire brigade and the ambulance and the likes. He, when he returned, the body of Mark von Sturm was missing. There was no evidence or leads to his disappearance. Ooh. The next day, Louise Saville was invited to the home of Hedwig von Sturm for what she believed to be a meeting to clear the air between the two rival families, an eye for an eye and all that. But Hedwig had other ideas, blaming Louise and her family for the von Sturm misfortune. That's when Louise lost it and let loose. You see, at this point now, Hedwig, she knew who who was responsible for her, for her misfortune. So with obviously she didn't kill Frank Savile that was uh, Mark that did that Mm. but she kind of the same way the same way that Sydney kind of inherited Maureen Prescott's vengeance from Billy yeah Hedwig is kind of portraying her anger now on on Louise because Frank didn't dare to take anymore like you know okay but Louise let loose on her, telling her that Inspector Holloway had discovered Mark was killing and leaving the dolls as evidence so as to point the crimes directly at her. He was sick of dealing with his invalid mother and wanted to get rid of her. With the information he had stolen from Clermer's office, he could restore his family fortune and lead the life he felt he deserved. And Hedwig would only be an obstacle in the way of that lifestyle, so she had to go. 
that must kill a mother to hear, especially when she hasn't done anything wrong. Like she's just been a victim of circumstance. Her husband's conviction, the government seizing her assets, her son going on a killing spree with the plan to frame her. No wonder she was cranky with humans and only dealt with dolls. I'd love to know what happened to Mark dead, to Mark's dead body. Nothing, because there was no dead body. Mark mm. was alive. Louise found him paralyzed from the neck down, dressed and made up like a doll, unable to move or help himself. Because of her discovery in the house, Hedwig decided she must dispose of Louise, only to be bested by the much more youthful and healthy woman. Hedwig fell from the top of a flight of stairs in a struggle with Louise, impaling herself on a blade that she had planned to use on Louise. Mark von Sturm was moved to a prison hospital to be treated for his injuries, but died a short time later due to complications brought on by the doll treatment performed on him by his mother. And that's it. That was the end of the Von Sturms. They got their revenge, but they paid the ultimate price. I hate scary doll stories. They always creep me out, but I guess at least it wasn't a possessed doll story. I dare the worst. You'll hate what I got in store for you this Halloween, so... Oh, I shouldn't have opened my mouth. <laughs> <laughs> don't worry, it's months away. Until then, don't forget to like and subscribe us on to us on Spotify, iTunes, YouTube, Audible, Google Pods, Acast, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Also, you can follow us on all socials at Alive Alive Pod or follow my own page at Amy Rose IAA for some great content, fashion pics, and podcast updates. It's Alive Alive Podcast, all the guts and gore with none of the guilt. See you all next time. Same Alive Alive time, same Horrorverse channel. Love you. Bye bye. Okay, lady, I love you. Bye bye. <laughs>